Hello, everybody, uh, and Kia Ora. Um, so today we will talk about an Austrian study that investigates policy options for uh, managing the impacts of the oldest trucks operating on Australian uh, and New Zealand roads. Welcome to everybody, and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session with the help of one of our presenters, Nathan Gold-Brown, who will moderate the Q&A part of the webinar. So first of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today uh, was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Dell Place. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes, and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The report uh, and the slides that this presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There is also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. Uh, if your question relates to any particular slide, please include the slide number in your message um, to help us um, answer your question as best as we can. You can also use that same question section to let us know if you have any technical problems. But a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. So closing the browser and rejoining the session using your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Austroads in your podcast app. Um, so our presenters today are Mark Jarek and uh, Nathan Go-Brown. We will first hear from Mark Jarek. Mark is Director and Principal Consultant at Movement, a company he founded to accelerate the shift to sustainable vehicles and fuels. After an early career in the auto industry, he has spent more than 15 years advising on policies and programs to reduce the cost uh, and community impact of transport vehicles. Many of these projects have involved working directly with fleets to manage their cars, trucks, buses, and rolling stock. His current projects are focused on supporting governments to transition to zero emission vehicles. Our second presenter is Nathan Go-Brown. Nathan is a senior consultant and has led many of Movement's electric vehicle um, transition projects. Previously, he held uh, very senior roles with premium brands in the international automotive industry. He has also worked uh, more recently with trucks and heavy diesel construction and mining equipment. In this project, Nathan led much of the safety research, consultation, and case studies. Welcome to our presenters, and I will now hand over to Mark. Thanks, Ekaterina. I'll just share my slides. Excellent. So thanks for that introduction, um, Ekaterina, and, uh, and welcome everybody uh, this afternoon. Thanks also to Austroads for, uh, for deciding to look into this, what we think is a really interesting, but also a really important uh, topic area. So at Movement, we do a lot of our work on the introduction of, uh, of new technologies and new fuels, and also on reducing emissions. And it's probably fair to say that uh, the large focus of, of both policy and, uh, and regulations is on that 
front end of the market looking at uh, at new vehicles, and there's far less focus on um, on the tail end of the market, which is older vehicles and the dropping out of those older vehicles um, at the end of a funnel, if you like to imagine it that way. So uh, again, thanks to Ostroads um, and you know commend them for for looking at what is a really complex and uh, and challenging area. So I'm going to spend uh, just a couple of minutes going through a pro project overview, who who was on the team and, and what we did. Um, it's probably not quite so interesting, but we'll get to the, the more interesting stuff um, shortly after that. So if I go to the next slide. So we can see here that uh, the project team comprised uh, Richard Del Plas as the uh, program manager at Ostroads, and the project manager was Hugh McMaster. And I led the project on the movement side um, of the project team with uh, with two in my team, Nathan, who you're going to hear from shortly, and and Alan Morgan as well, um, who were doing analysis, research, modelling, and uh, and contributing to the the authorship of the report. Really important to also acknowledge here on uh, on this slide the contribution from the review team, which includes an Australia's working group. I'll, I'll have I've got another slide on that in a moment but also the freight task force uh, and the Ostroads board. So if we think about the, if we look at the working group here, um, all of the state road agencies were, were represented on the working group. We also had representation from the federal government through two agencies uh, and also third tier of government, uh, local government association, in addition to um, New Zealand as well. And uh, in addition to those, we also had the national heavy vehicle regulator, the National Transport Commission and also Transport Certification of uh, Australia. And um, as well as the working group, we had the Freight Task Force and there was a fair bit of overlap between those two. But I just want to take a moment on this slide to acknowledge their um, invaluable contributions. Probably hard to overstate um, how, um, how significant they were in terms of providing perspectives, certainly from a government perspective, but also what's, you know, what's happening in the market. Um, and some of those regulatory issues as well. Uh, it's a fairly thankless task, I think, at times. So just a big thank you to those uh, those participants in that process. So let's get on to why we were doing this project and what we actually did. So very quickly, uh, the purpose was really to look at, um, we know we have old trucks on the road in Australia. Uh, the purpose was to examine um, the, the effects or the community impacts or the issues associated with that. Uh, what other jurisdictions and other markets have done with that same issue and uh, whether any of the things that they have done are particularly relevant for introduction in, uh, into Australia. That's a very high level overview. Um, we're going to get into the detail of that, but that's broadly what the purpose of this project was about. So the process that we went through, it's a fairly standard uh, research uh, methodology. We looked at some key issues and some background. Um, conducted a bit of initial research to look at uh, what those issues were and identify whether there were any gaps and then to um, continue that with with literature review particularly around what other jurisdictions have been doing on this issue uh, supplement that with stakeholder consultation and um, compile that synthesize that into uh, a whole range of different potential options uh, for government here in Australia and assess those for their relevance. So as I said, fairly standard methodology. Over here, the gap analysis, probably the most important aspect I would say, because uh, as, I'll, as I'll discuss in a minute, there were some fairly 
significant data gaps, and there still are in this uh, in this particular area. So what do we know? I guess starting with what do we know about aged trucks in Australia? We have ABS data uh, that tells us what the average age of trucks is in Australia. Um, we can compare that, we can get a sense of whether that's old or young or not old, you know, uh, in comparison to other countries around the world, which is what we did here. And um, what we've plotted here, you can see the age of vehicles on the graph here in the vertical axis, and then a whole range of different countries around the world and the age of their fleet. Now, there's a couple of little nuances here. Most countries report this or have data available based on three and a half tonnes gross vehicle mass and above. And um, typically in Australia, we'd be looking at heavy vehicles above four and a half tonnes. So we, we cut the data both ways, looking at uh, both three and a half tonnes and four and a half tonnes. And you can see here Australia at um, four and a half tonnes, we're about just under 15 years old. New Zealand up here, um, just under 17. And if we compare that with other countries across the world, we can see that equivalent um, Western economies are broadly um, much younger than our truck fleet in terms of average age. Countries like the US, which is over here, uh, certainly much younger. And we're kind of in line with uh, certainly parts of Eastern Europe and some less developed countries, but even countries like Vietnam uh, have a much younger fleet age. So uh, that's, that tells us one number, average age, probably doesn't tell us too much um, about the makeup of the fleet. We know that different trucks are different, come in different sizes and shapes and do different kinds of work. So we also looked at uh, the age of trucks um, in the first disaggregation or the first split, looking at rigid trucks, heavy rigid trucks and articulated trucks. And just, I guess, a note on terminology because some on the webinar might not be familiar with it. Um, a, Heavy uh, rigid truck is something that is a, a one unit. So we have a cab, we have the chassis, and we have the body which carries the freight all in one unit. And an articulated truck, um, you can see on the slide here, involves uh, a prime mover which does the pulling of the trailer, and uh, the trailer carries most of that uh, that freight. So I guess it's just a note on that terminology. We know that heavy trucks, on average, are older than articulated trucks. So just under um, 16 years, 15.7 years, and articulated is just under 12 years. We know that there's about four times as many heavy rigid trucks as well as there are articulated trucks. So um, um, certainly older trucks and many more of them. And I guess in the context of what we're what we're looking at in this study, probably the most uh, the most important slide here is that. We look at the task that those trucks do. So this is vehicle kilometres travelled up here on the vertical axis, billions of kilometres. Um, we can see that um, heavy rigid trucks as a cohort do about the same amount of work as articulated trucks uh, around the 8 billion um, kilometres in terms of vehicle kilometres travelled. Most important context for this study is that if you look at these coloured bands here, um, the uh, the aqua coloured band is uh, the age is the age group of the oldest truck. So this is ABS classifications. We have three categories, and we can see that um, the oldest cohort in both heavy rigids and in articulated trucks are doing the uh, the least amount of work in terms of the least driving. Uh, and then we have the you know the the newer category up here in pre two thousand or sorry post two thousand nine, 
and the let's call them the middle-aged category. So it's about 16% of heavy rigid task and under 10% of the articulated task. What else do we know? That's a, it's a summary of, um, I guess, the evidence to that point around the age of vehicles. But there were also some data gaps that we looked at. And if we look at the, the brief for this project, um, the, the summary of the, the, um, the problem, if we want to call it the problem, is that there are end of life vehicles that operate in uh, low profit tasks and collectively um, they may cause problems around safety and emissions. And I guess we started this project with uh, a desire to test those assumptions and to see whether there was evidence and data to support that. So breaking that down, uh, what is an end of life or, a, or an aged vehicle? Uh, where do they operate and what are they doing? Who's using them? And then also, um, is there a case to do anything about that? Why would we need to do something about that? And so we really wanted to, I guess, build a foundation and evidence base for all of those issues and make sure that there was sufficient data and, and rationale there to support that. Because if something was going to be done at some point in, in time in the future, you want to be pretty solid on, on those, uh, those particular elements of the, the rationale to do something. So I'm going to step through each one of these over the next few slides, uh, starting with um, what is uh, an end-of-life truck or an aged truck. Now, when we looked at this uh, this issue in particular, we were looking at um, how would how would you define uh, an aged truck, and what characteristic or what what feature would you use to define that? And and we looked at a whole range of factors, everything from age in years, which we can get from ABS. You can see some of these on the slide here. Um, the age of the vehicle, what emission standard does it comply with, what kind of safety technology is it fitted with, um, um, in things related to mass limits, so high productivity vehicles, for example, and um, we, we, we know there's a lot of data out there in terms of roadworthiness and major defects, so whether that could be a potential indicator. And what we were looking for was really, is there a, a feature or an indicator related to age that provides a nice clear break point in time, uh, which we could use as a defining characteristic. And so you can see these nice um, even lines here are those kind of examples of, of break lines um, or, or thresholds in between different, different eras. And what we found was, um, emissions was probably the best characteristic to use because there were clearly defined break lines, but, but also in between that, um, there was also a, a, a difference in one of the impacts that we were looking to look at, which is, which is health, um, that was different between those different characteristics as well. So we decided that um, the emissions class or the emissions compliance standard was, was the characteristic that we were going to use in terms of defining these. And um, Part of the reason for that was we know that the Truck Industry Council had done some work in the past where pollution exposure was one of the one of the highest externality costs or the community costs for vehicles, um, and it was so it was a fairly uh, reliable indicator. And so we defined an aged vehicle as anything that was pre two thousand and eight, which aligns approximately, if you're familiar with the terminology, Euro three as an emission standard. Um, that would put us broadly in terms of age at uh, equivalent to other OECD, other, other Western nations. So it wasn't just arbitrary, but we also decided that we could 
break down that cohort into three sub-segments. You can see over here on the right of the, um, of the graph, you can see that uh, pre-2008 vehicles um, were uh, all the way down to pre-2006 vehicles. If we look at the, the, um, how much of the fleet they comprise, more than half the vehicles on the road are pre-2008. So this subclasses of pre-2008, pre-2003 and pre-1996 become fairly significant because even that cohort, which uh, was, was sold before the introduction of the Euro standards, still comprises about a fifth of the trucks on the road. So anything that, that uh, is done to address these vehicles clearly is going to affect a lot of vehicles. So uh, it's important to recognise that in, um, in the early phases. So that, that, that speaks to the question of what is an age truck? And then looking at where are they used and who uses them? I've got a slide here, there's, there's a fair bit in it. I'll walk you through what the graph shows. Um, looking at ABS data of where vehicles are used, uh, this is survey data. We've split the vehicles between articulated and rigid trucks. Uh, and it should become pretty evident why we've done that. Uh, the different columns here, the bars represent uh, the different age classes of vehicles, and they're done by colour as well as um, where they, whether they operate in urban, which is the coloured shading sections here, or um, non-urban areas, which is the unshaded portions. And the proportion of time that they spend in those areas I guess the key takeaways from this entire process or this entire analysis were uh, that for rigid trucks, they spend about two thirds of their time uh, operating in urban areas. And for articulated trucks, it's about two thirds of their time in non-urban. Um, and that's, that's a fairly significant finding for us because regardless of age category, um, that seems to be a fairly consistent um, finding. Now this is probably a bit counter, I wouldn't call it uh, busting a myth, but it's probably a bit counter the, to the conventional wisdom that particularly articulated trucks spend their early time uh, on in, interstate line haul or in uh, non-urban areas, and then get brought in closer to urban areas. Uh, because it's pretty clear from the evidence here that they actually spend about the same time regardless of age operating in um, uh, urban and non-urban areas. So, um, that was, that's one perspective on where do they operate. Uh, who's using them was another area that we looked at. So thinking back to these, you know, the, the initial evidence base, um, I'm gonna skip through these fairly quickly, but it's, uh, it's there's two graphs here, uh, this one and the next slide. What we looked at was different types of uh, freight or commodity, which is down here on the vertical axis. And then the amount of task measured in, in kilometers that's done by different age groups in those um, freight sectors. So quite a lot of data, very interesting. And we rank them by um, commodity types that, that um, operate age trucks for the, for the highest task, let's say. And so you can see that the top five um, sectors that use age trucks in terms of um, laden distance, million kilometers, are general freight, tools of trade, food, quarrying type operations and machinery and transport. And you can see, even looking at these graphs, you know, anything in the top 10 is still, uh, all those sectors are using uh, age trucks to a fairly small degree if you look at uh, the, the, the total task that they're doing. Um, a different perspective on that, which I think is probably more interesting is, well, which of those sectors are more reliant? And it's the same data, just cut a different way. 
which of them are, which of those sectors are more reliant on aged trucks this is a different ranking based on the highest proportion of task out of the total task that they do so if you look at one of these here they're obviously doing down here in the bottom section of this graph they're doing a lot less in total but the proportion could be higher and that that's borne out by the data to some degree because if you take the top five here uh, only one of them overlaps with uh, the previous graph that we looked at, which is machinery and, and transport equipment. Um, and the highest reliance on aged trucks is cereal grains and just miscellaneous uh, manufactured articles. Now, these are ABS commodity categories. These aren't ones that, that we've come up with. I'd say, um, you know, part of the challenge here is that, that if you look at general freight, which uh, on the previous graph was, you know, the highest user of, of aged trucks out of any sector, it doesn't give you much definition in terms of a, a category as to who's using them and where they're using them. So I'd say there's probably still a fair bit of work to do in that space, but at least by sector, we've got some kind of understanding that, you know, out of out of um, certainly those top two in terms of uh, cereal grains and, and miscellaneous articles, they're, they're the highest reliance on aged vehicles. Part of that lack of information, let's say, in terms of um, granularity was, um, partly resolved and also addressed by the consultation that we did, which was a really important part of this project. We spoke to, I think it was seven industry associations that represent fleet operators, uh, as well as um, all of the agencies that were on our working group, which as I said before, provided great insight into this space and really trying to get down to who is using these trucks or what are the characteristics of a fleet that might use the oldest trucks and, uh, and why are they doing it? So we compiled, there's a few dot points here to summarise that. Really, it's uh, largely a financial driver that's, that's driving operators to use aged trucks, those who are moving around low margin freight because aged trucks um, are much cheaper to buy and can have potentially lower, uh, lower operating costs. But there were other, other, other sectors as well or other, other carriers who were using them, those who have specialised bodies where the cost of that specialised body has to be amortised over the life of the vehicle. Um, uh, and those whose primary primary business is not actually running vehicles, it's manufacturing or it's food production or uh, primary production even, where the vehicles are uh, ancillary to the main, uh, the main operations. And I guess the, the insight that probably supports the rule of thumb that everybody uses is that there are many owner operators who are using um, the oldest vehicles in the fleet but they have very little representation. So not many of those are members of peak bodies. And so the voice in terms of the, the discussion around what to do about age trucks doesn't really get heard that much. Really important for some of the stakeholders in this, uh, in this space is why are age trucks used? So why, 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 people, why do we have this, this high average age? Uh, and there's a few reasons there on the slide. You can see, as I said before, financial drivers are a, are a big consideration. They're cheap to buy. Most of the depreciation's already happened, so that's not a cost. Um, and they can be cheap to operate and, to, and simple to maintain as well. Um, two really critical factors are, there's really no barriers to entry. You can go out, as long as the vehicle's roadworthy, you can buy a cheap truck and start hauling stuff tomorrow. Um, there are also no incentives to buy a newer, cleaner, safer, um, truck or or one that's less polluting um, that would help uh, fleets to to actually not purchase older trucks and maybe one of the most important factors is that we don't have a secondary disposal market so in the US 
trucks get retired over the border into a second life, which helps um, keep their values higher. The same happens in the UK and the same happens in Europe where trucks migrate from Western Europe to Eastern Europe. Uh, and you could see that earlier on in the graph that I presented with the average age of the, um, of the fleets in those countries. So that, that's a summary of all the, um, of the additional, I guess, I guess, ground truthing of the assumptions that we did, uh, particularly on what is an age truck, where does it operate and who, uh, who is operating it. I guess the final question out of those, um, the testing the evidence is why do we need to do something about it or why would we want to? Uh, and we looked into particular at two areas um, for, for answering that question. Uh, we looked at uh, safety. So there is a perception that older trucks uh, are less safe. And there is also a perception and some evidence to suggest that older trucks create um, more air pollution and therefore that's a, a cost on the community. So if we start with safety, uh, again, more graphs for all of the engineers in the, in the audience. This is uh, this one's quite complex, so I'll walk you through it. If we look just at the graph to start with, um, we've split um, crashes and I'll, I'll, I'll just clarify here. Uh, there's a lot of well, several different ways that we can look at road safety. One of those is looking at uh, fatality crashes. And we did that, we did that analysis in the similar sort of way that we're, I'm gonna walk you through here. But the sample size, thankfully, this is a good thing. Uh, the sample size, the number of events that happen is relatively small. So trying to draw some conclusions on the involvement of aged trucks uh, becomes less statistically significant when you have a small sample size. So we expanded out and looked at casualty crashes. Um, and the data that we've presented here uh, involves casualty crashes and so this is the frequency of uh, crashes in terms of crashes per billion kilometers. Uh, looking at uh, urban and non-urban. So first is the regional split. And then within those, we've split them by articulated and rigid trucks. As I said, there's a lot here and the different columns represent the different age groups. I'll pull you to the main, uh, the main findings here is that for, uh, well, firstly, uh, urban trucks crash more frequently, in, frequently in terms of casualty crashes per billion kilometers. That's this cohort here, you can see the bars are higher. Secondly, if we look at articulated trucks, the newest trucks, which is the maroon trucks, uh, the maroon columns here, clearly crash less often. Um, and um, the two oldest cohorts, which is uh, trucks older than 15 years, again, these are ABS categories and middle-aged trucks, they crash about almost about the same frequency. The interesting thing here was for rigid trucks, both in urban and uh, non-urban areas. So this is this second column and this fourth column, the middle age cohort of trucks crashes more frequently than the oldest trucks. So again, I, I'm not suggesting we're busting any myths here, but that was a surprising finding because the, I guess the conventional wisdom and the rules of thumb that we we see operating is that the oldest trucks in the fleet are the uh, the least safe and therefore have the highest crash risk, but that's not necessarily borne out in the data that uh, that we've compiled here. And so a different perspective on that is, um, you know, a different way to look at the urban and, and non-urban split is by speed zone. I find this a bit easier to, uh, to understand. Looking at articulated trucks, these are the speed zones in which um, casualty crashes happen the frequency up on this axis here. And so again, by color group, the newest trucks 
uh, in each speed zone crash the least uh, least frequently. Uh, for articulated trucks, um, the oldest trucks do crash most frequently, particularly in the particularly in a 60 speed zone. But in other speed zones, it's about the same as middle-aged trucks. So we can put that to one side and look at rigid trucks. Surprising finding here is that the middle-aged cohort, regardless of speed zone, crashes most frequently. So that's this brown line here. And again, uh, the newest trucks crash least frequently, but the oldest trucks, they kind of sit in between. So again, that's that's a different way to look at it, but uh, a relatively surprising finding, certainly when uh, when we looked at the data. The last point I'd make on safety is that um, looking at crash representation in terms of our age trucks overrepresented or not is one perspective, but for those crashes that do occur, probably the more important perspective is, well, why did they occur? What was the cause? And so we looked at um, data uh, from NTI for this one, looking at large loss claims. So these are claims higher than $50,000. Um, and if you look at all the crash causes over here in this left-hand pie chart, um, the issue probably most related to um, vehicle age is uh, mechanical failure. And out of all the crash causes or large loss claims, mechanical failure represents only about 6.5% of those losses. So pretty small number that could be related to age. If we break those down even further into the, the different types of mechanical failure, we see that tyres, tyre failures, are responsible for at least half of that 6%. So all the other potential uh, you know, fatigue, uh, metal fatigue and, and component failure related causes that might relate to an aged vehicle kind of sit in this group up here, which is less than half of that 6%, so 3% maximum. Uh, and not all of those will be on aged trucks, so it's almost an upper limit which again, a really surprising finding here. I would say, you know, again, sample size is relatively small and there probably needs to be a bit more focus in this area, looking at correlations between the age of the vehicle and the crash causes and crash factors. Uh, we saw a lot of correlations in the crash data related to driver age, time of day, road type, speed zone, many, many factors but none of them really were correlating to vehicle age. So it's probably an area that, uh, that could do with a bit more research. Okay, so that's the safety, uh, the safety perspective. Just a quick reminder here, I've only got a couple more slides. Um, if you've got questions, please put your questions into the comments, um, the, uh, the, uh, the comments box and nominate the slide that you're talking about. So when we go back, we can have a quick, uh, a quick look at those. So looking at uh, health costs, so this was um, uh, this was the second area that we looked at in terms of the rationale for actually doing something uh, on aged vehicles. We did look at some previous research that's been done and the Truck Industry Council has been uh, very active in, in uh, looking at this issue in particular, as well as some other, some other factors that would um, compare newer vehicles and older vehicles. Um, so we used some of that and we used some, um, some previous um, analysis that was done by Vitri in their regulatory impact statements on uh, the introduction of new emission standards, but largely that was focused on uh, new vehicles. So we decided to do some some modelling to look at this issue, independent modelling to look at this issue ourselves. And I'd say here that um, you know the primary determinant of health costs or the community impact of pollution emissions from the oldest trucks in the fleet 
comes down to an equation that really, you know, the, the, the cost of um, the pollution depends on the rate of pollution emissions. And that's determined by the Euro standard or the ADR standard, which we've used as the, the age indicator. That varies by the age of the vehicle. Um, that's one factor. A second factor is um, what the relative cost of emissions is for those different, or the relative health cost for those pollutants. So we've got particulate matter, um, oxides of nitrogen and others, which all have a different human health impact. Uh, so there's a different unit cost for those and there's a different exposure depending on whether they're running in urban and non-urban areas. And then the last factor is how much are they used? And we know that from, from our work, and we modelled this in, in the study, um, old vehicles, aged trucks are used a lot less uh, on a kilometre basis than newer trucks. And if you look in the report, there's a, um, um, there's a methodology about how we did this modelling. I'll just walk you through that formula. But the two, two slides I've got here in terms of the findings are that, um, again, there's a lot in this graph. But the summary is that pre-1996 trucks, so those with the, uh, the least amount of emissions controls on them, are currently imposing on the community a health cost of about $200 million per annum. And that's a combination of urban health costs as well as non-urban. And you can see these two graphs, this one's urban on the left, non-urban on the right. Uh, the difference is about four and a half times between those two, uh, those two regions. So just quickly on this graph, this is the health cost that we calculated, attributed to different uh, vehicle emission standards, Euro zero, Euro one, um, Euro uh, three, Euro four, Euro five. And as we, uh, as we step through those, you can see that over time, the relative proportion of those changes uh, in terms of its contribution to the total health cost. And I guess the key findings is that if nothing is done, particularly for those pre-1996 vehicles, uh, the health cost halves every four years. Uh, in 2024, the cost will be 90 million and by 2029, uh, 2029 it'll be 38 million. So it is, it is halving. Um, and so, you know, any measure that's implemented, and I'm talking about whether it's a policy or a regulation or whatever, um, should focus on particularly urban areas because that's where the higher health cost uh, is having an impact. Of course, that $200 million that we're talking about related to those vehicles, you can't just disappear that off the face of the earth. You can't just take Euro zero, Euro zero vehicles off the road and not expect them to re be replaced by anything. So we did, a, I guess, two hypothetical scenarios looking at if, we, if you were to remove Euro zero vehicles, which are imposing that $200 million and replace them with something else, what would the difference in health costs look like? And the, those two scenarios were uh, represented here, a new for old replacement. So take a Euro Zero vehicle off the road, replace it with a Euro 5 vehicle and look at the difference in health costs. That was the new for old. The other scenario was trickle down. So take a Euro Zero vehicle off the road, a pre-96 vehicle and replace it with the next oldest cohort, which would be a Euro 1 vehicle. And so you get this trickle down of new vehicles entering at the top and, and old vehicles just shuffling down at the bottom. And somewhat surprisingly, it was the it was the trickle down scenario that resulted in the highest um, health savings if you were to just trickle those down, and that relates to the utilisation of uh, the oldest trucks in the fleet. So even if you're replacing a Euro Zero with a Euro One, they're not being used anywhere near as much as those that come in at the top end at a Euro Five, and the difference there was about three quarters of a billion dollars to one and a half billion dollars over a period of seven years. 
So a pretty significant cost um, on the community. So I guess looking at all of that that I've talked about uh, in the last half hour, what we're really talking about is that there is, you know, at face value, a case for doing something um, about the, the oldest vehicles on the road. Maybe not from a safety perspective. Uh, they don't seem to be overrepresented. Certainly middle age, you know, vehicles older than five years do seem to be involved in, in crashes more frequently. But um, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between the oldest, more than 15 year olds, and the middle aged group. But from a health perspective, which is what we looked at here in the last couple of slides, there is a pretty significant cost on the community, which is a real cost that's being paid now by government and by people in the community from the health effects of air pollution. So what do you do about it? Well, I'm gonna hand over to Nathan to, uh, to take that over and, and he's gonna talk about some of those options. Thanks, Mark. Um, just uh, organizing to share my screen. Can you see that now, Mark? Yes, it's all correct. Wonderful, okay. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for that. And um, as we said, uh, we have impacts, they're clearly stated, and now um, we, what we've taken a look at is, is what, the, what the rest of the world has, has done about those, um, about those impacts and the sort of uh, things that might be considered for uh, policy here in Australia. But before I go into the things that we have found, one of the things we found along the way was that um, it was important to have an understanding of the types of measures. There are plenty of measures that one can put in place for um, um, managing and modifying the, the truck fleet. Um, but um, it depends on how you apply them and where you do to the cohort. So the um, Australian and New Zealand truck markets are, are fairly similar in their in their behaviours, even if they're a different quantum. Um, there's about 35,000 new trucks in Australia each year, about 2,000 new trucks in New Zealand each year, and the fleet themselves are, you know, about 650,000 in Australia, um, and about 50,000 in, uh, in in New Zealand. And and in both cases, vehicles, trucks last in the fleet about 35 years before they are scrapped. Before they are scrapped. So there are there are sort of two ways of looking at this. And we, if you have if you have a consideration for the types of things you can impact um, uh, age trucks, there are the sorts of measures that are often gone to, often go tos, um, which are you know let, let's let's introduce Euro six and see if that's going to make a difference. Well, it's not going to make a difference. It does not directly impact that of age trucks. Um, purchase incentives for newer trucks again are not going to impact that of age trucks because age truck owners and users do not buy brand new trucks. Um, and then there's also other um, impacts, uh, another, other measurement um, uh, elements that can be used um, and have been seen um, that, that might impact the whole entire fleet. So European weekend curfews as an example to get trucks off the road on Sundays um, and it affects every vehicle, but it's not specifically that for age trucks. Um, whereas the direct impact um, measurement or measures for aged trucks um, are things that directly affect them and mostly only them. And that's what this study has gone on to, um, to uh, measure, understand, look at international um, behaviours and, and consider what might be most effective. So within that, um, we've gone and done a uh, uh, literature review and understanding the marketplace around the world and, and um, consolidate that into, into sort of a few key groups of 
activities that support um, the uh, the management of age trucks, and, and really they fall into um, uh, access. Uh, issues, uh, access management, so low emission zones, for instance, um, financial disincentives, um, so you know, costs for use, um, uh, grants and scrappage schemes that are specifically focused to age trucks, um, repowering, retrofitting, cleaning up the exhaust of um, of age trucks as well, so that the impact that Mark's just outlined um, is reduced. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, you know, direct um, direct access bans. Some parts of the world um, can and do ban people. Um, Asian countries have, have seen some of that with um, Hong Kong, Singapore and, and, and China banning cohorts of vehicles of, of, of a certain age. Um, other parts of the world tend to use more about the access restriction and, um, and financial support for those who wish to um, upgrade so that they can still access those areas. And what we're seeing a lot more of, particularly in Europe and U US, is uh, the introduction of low emission zones. Um, and you can see here that across Europe, there are uh, many uh, low emission zones popping up, particularly, you know, Germany and Italy are, are very fond of them. The UK is starting to become very fond of them, along with the European mandate to um, reduce uh, air quality issues in cities and towns. And, you know, those, those are coming with either outright bans um, or more, more likely a, a high uh, impact penalty for access to that area, which, dis which is a disincentive. Um, some of the financial measures that we researched and, and, and understood more about um, were things like road tax and differential tolls, um, road user charges, those sorts of things that you can uh, that could be um, uh, it could could be commensurate with the impacts of those age trucks. Um, grants and scrappage schemes that um, uh, particularly focused, as we mentioned before, on the aged cohort and higher emission vehicles. And then there was the retro um, retrofit and repower. Now, this is something that was very popular in the 2000s and 2010s, um, and also occurred here in Australia to a degree. Uh, but you know that that is all focused on um, was focused on uh, cleaning up ice or diesel. Um, uh, trucks, and so we're starting to see a bit of a move away from that. From from internal combustion engine um, technology is as a is a very sort of future lens, and so therefore um, uh, that's probably becoming less and less of an option. Although there may be some EV retrofit opportunity for uh, vehicles of an age. Um, so one of the things you know, bringing that all together, um, really what we found across across the world was there's no single measure that will fix this. It is almost always going to be complementary, where you can use push and pull factors to support the industry to make a decision and move where, you, where, um, where the society would like it to go um, off the back of the, the different researches that we, we took undertook. That um, whatever is put forward um, needs to be large enough to compel change as well. And um, linking the activity to other programs, reforms, narratives will leverage broader support. So of those evaluations um, that, we, uh, that we made, we, um, we then took them all and we ranked them for what their effectiveness might be. Now this, um, this effectiveness based on the international uh, information, uh, we did under a, a number of different elements. We did a sort of three-staged um, scoring mechanism. We, we scored um, around their coverage, 
um, how hard it would be to um, implement if it was easy for all parties or hard for one party or other in Australian government, um, how long it would take to get implemented, um, the cost, the quantum of cost, is it cheap, is it expensive? And how likely is this, this particular um, element uh, or, or measure likely to impact the use of aged vehicles that, that cost um, the organisation, or sorry, the the, uh, the country in health costs based on the work that Mark was laying out before. So there were um, uh, about nine major areas of um, uh, opportunity, and um, this is all laid out in the report, of course. Um, there was a few quick win opportunities and uh, things that could be implemented very quickly if that was something that uh, a agency wished to do around uh, differential tolls, um, providing scrappage scheme that then put that, that vehicle off the road and um, and into um, scrap and um, and also in a similar light investment support for coming away from one of those older vehicles. So there's some quick opportunities. Those with the greater impact um, were around those low emission zones um, and excluding vehicles from areas. Um, there was also uh, increased um, registration by age, commensurate, um, likely to be commensurate with the um, size of the impact that those vehicles were causing. And the road user charge did uh, does a similar sort of thing to that of um, to that of registration, uh, but maybe even even more targeted because of um, when, where, and how much um, a vehicle is being used. So um, before we head on into questions, uh, Mark's going to take us on to a, a few insights and then I'll moderate your questions. Thanks, Nathan. Okay, so uh, my screen sharing. Yes, it is. Yes, excellent. Thank you. Um, two slides, uh, quick, a, a quick recap on insights. So this summarises and I guess pulls out a couple of the uh, the really interesting things that we found in this um, in this study. And that's in addition to those that we've been talking about uh, previously in the uh, in the in the earlier slides. So in terms of health, sorry, in terms of in terms of safety, um, I mentioned before we found that that um, the oldest vehicles in the fleet did not seem to crash at a higher rate than the middle-aged vehicles, which was a which was a surprise to us, and also counter to some of the um, I guess the narrative and the, the the rules of thumb that that industry and government are using. Uh, from a health perspective, uh, we saw that pre-1996 vehicles, so those with the least or no emissions controls on them, even though they only represent uh, about 4% of the, the task, they're well over-represented in the health costs that they impose on the community in terms of close to uh, a quarter of all health costs. Uh, what that translates to, if you want to think of a vehicle uh, that's operating around in the city that, that sits within that cohort, is somewhere between $3,000 and $21,000 per annum that it's imposing on uh, on the community in terms of health costs related to pollution or, or you know, up to 90 cents per kilometre that it travels. Uh, so that was a really interesting little, uh, a little nugget for us. And if we look at, if we stay on health costs for a second, those um, Euro Zero pre-1996 vehicles that represent about a quarter of costs, um, that's $200 million a year at the moment, and that halves every four years, which would suggest that you, you know, 
you probably need to do something quickly if you if you want to do something, um, or you leave it and you accept that health cost, um, and it will reduce over time for that cohort. But guess what? Uh, the next cohort, the Euro One vehicles, they've got a health cost of about the same, which is about two hundred million dollars. And then the cohort behind them, the Euro Threes, has roughly the same. It's not quite two hundred. I think it's one hundred and ninety million. You'll see that in the report as well. So the issue of you know, um, pollution-related health costs related to heavy vehicles is something that that is going to have to be addressed. It doesn't disappear over time. And so, if we skip to the conclusions really quickly, again, these are these are pretty well covered in the uh, in the report. Our older trucks are in our market because of a number of factors. One is we don't have a disposal market, and two is there are no uh, barriers to or very few barriers to entry, and there isn't really much policy or or regulation to stop people from using them. If governments want to do something about that, uh, there's a need to take strong measures, but also complementary measures, not just one thing. It's an integrated suite of uh, combination of carrot and sticks, if you like. Um, very easy to think of uh, the cost of inaction weighed against the cost of action, because we're already paying a cost as a community uh, through our taxes and our health system of up to $21,000 a year per truck. Um, if you were going to do something on, on removing those oldest vehicles from urban areas, then every other jurisdiction that's done that overseas uh, tries to ensure that that problem does not recur by removing those vehicles entirely. Uh, and Nathan talked about some of the, the higher scoring measures that, um, uh, that came out of the analysis. The last point I'd make on those is that um, a lot of those are medium to long-term uh, success measures whereas what you'd need to do is combine them with some shorter term measures, which just happen to be uh, incentive related around replacement programs and so forth, which, uh, as I said, were listed in the um, the evaluation of options. Last point there is that um, any action that's taken in future should target the problem. So if the problem is high urban um, health costs related to pollution because of old trucks operating in urban areas, then that should be the focus of policies. Uh, to be most effective, not some kind of blanket coverage of all age trucks in all areas. Let's go to questions. Hi, uh, yeah, and thank you very much, Mark, for that. Um, I've been uh, looking through some great questions here. They kind of fall into a, a few camps, and so with the nine or so minutes we have left, we'll we'll look at some working through those. And I wonder if we can just flick quickly to um, slide 17, um, and this sort of kicks off a bit of a topic that's running around the, the question space, which is particularly around um, containers and wharfs. And, um, and particularly the Port of Melbourne um, as, a, as a question area which has been coming around. So the question here initially is um, with this slide deck that we've got here with 17, um, if, if containers are used, can this category be captured? Um, do old vehicles tend to do more wharf work? And uh, I know that we did a lot of work around that space and, and this data set here, which is the, the um, I guess the the amount of depth that the ABS goes into does not break out um, containers, um, mm. but but Mark, we did that little bit of work on some of the data around the port um, of Melbourne, yeah. and there's more yeah, coming. Yeah, we did. Yep, that's right. And we we looked at the two studies that were conducted at the time, um, which weren't necessarily focused on the age of the truck. I know that there was a focus on uh, obviously the containers that were coming out of there. 
but out of the data that we saw, and, and we did initially have a, a case study in the report that looked at this, the aged vehicles, the oldest trucks, particularly the pre-96 trucks, did not seem to be overrepresented. Um, but again, that data was a few years old uh, by that stage. And also uh, it hadn't been analyzed previously with that perspective, although it potentially could be, it just wasn't within the scope of, of uh, this work. But anecdotally, uh, I think, you know, pretty much every, or certainly most uh, road agencies suggested to us that that was a, a freight sector that is uh, particularly reliant on aged trucks. It just doesn't come out in the granularity of the data that we have available. Yeah, and, and there are a couple of other um, questions that, that point to that space. And I think, you know, for all of those questions around um, container, wharf trucks in the aged cohort, to Mark's point, the data actually doesn't show it with what has been produced so far, mm. but I understand there are more studies coming which may be able to shed more light on that particular topic. We did also try to, just on that, we did try to engage with the, um, um, was it the Container and Association, um, but we uh, they weren't able to participate in the consultation, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so there's also been a lot of questions around um, around some of the crash data that we found, and, and you know everybody's got a theory as to as to why the data might have turned out that way. So if we have a look at slide 19, um, there's a number of questions around that, and I just wanted to have your thoughts there, Mark, on how much you think the uh, also does the data show us, or does, does, our, does our, the data provide us any insight into this mix between um, age trucks? Uh, middle-aged trucks in middle middle cohort. Um, uh, sorry, it might be um, might be different slide. slide 22 it's indeed. Um, and the experience of the driver and whether that driver might be an owner operator um, as well. That might yeah. result in, in in the different behaviours of those. Sure, and and I mean we probably don't need to look at the slide to to comment on it. Uh, did you say 22? Um, 22. I, I think that's potentially an issue. I think what, what came out of that was, hey, this is a really surprising finding and probably counter to what the what the perception was. And there could be a whole range of factors associated with that. Um, and we know from the truck core slide, which was the next one, that driver uh, contribution or to, to, to crash causes is, is actually fairly significant, but also that um, a lot of truck crashes that occur and result in a casualty are not actually related or the fault of the truck or the truck driver at all. And, and um, you know, they're due to other other vehicles, another vehicle that's at fault. So uh, potentially all of those issues are at play and that's why we've highlighted on that slide that actually there needs to be a lot more work done in this space because uh, mechanical causes in particular related to truck age, very small percentage, whether the, um, uh, the attraction of particular cohorts of drivers to those kind of vehicles plays a factor. We didn't, we didn't look at that. I mean, that needs to be looked at. Uh, it's probably a, a, a great study for someone to do, I suspect. Yeah, and there's a couple of other questions around and starting to dig deeper into the concepts that we found around severity of crash, you know, um, cause, of, you know, is, is, you know, we know that within the data set that we worked on, there are a number of uh, those incidents had nothing to do with the truck. It was just the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, there is no, there was no segregation of whether it was at fault or not. Um, so, um, so that's, so that sort of takes care of that safety piece. Um, there's a great question there around um, the total cost of ownership and, you know, what is the, 
you know, what are the what are the key drivers around total cost of ownership for a uh, a new a newer vehicle versus an older vehicle? Why do older vehicles get um, continue to be used? Um, is there a total cost of ownership element to that? Yeah, there was a graph uh, that we put into the report. I can't remember what page it was, but I can, we can chase it up and send it through, uh, which showed the, I guess, the massive effect of depreciation. So if you're purchasing a new vehicle, it doesn't matter whether it's a truck or a car or any kind of asset, that depreciation in the early years is a, uh, a fairly big contributor to the cost. Now, you don't pay that out of your pocket. It's not a cash flow issue until it comes time to sell that truck. Um, but as a weighted factor, the biggest factor or the, or the biggest cost factor is depreciation. So if you've got a vehicle that's done most of its depreciation, uh, that becomes a, a cost that is either much smaller or that you don't have to pay if you're purchasing an aged truck. Yes, excellent. Um, I'm going to cover off one question that's popped up here. Um, around uh, does this information include um, farmers trucks um, the cohort that we've worked out here and we've used all the data on is, is anything that's got registration number plate so if it's an on-farm non-registered you know off the grid vehicle that's likely not to fall into this data set but if it's got a number plate on it it's likely to have fallen into this data set and mm. I just wanted to cover that off before we move on to probably the most um, most interesting question that's come from a couple of different individuals and this is around um, um, again, there's a bit of focus around um, port traffic in Melbourne um, and how um, how do we think that the trucking industry would react to um, a ban of older trucks around the uh, around the Melbourne port particularly or a port facility um, or even around a particular site. It doesn't have to be the Melbourne port facility, but the same concept. Um, as has occurred in other places like LA's port in, in the past. How do you think the, uh, the industry would um, would react to that sort of approach? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the industry, but I'll put my, my, <laughs> my perspective on it. I think it depends on the implementation. So, you know, a blanket ban that says no age trucks beyond this, this, this age allowed in this area with no other measures would not be a very good implementation of, of a regulation or policy. Um, one of the things that comes through hopefully, uh, comes through strongly, I hope in the report is that the evidence from every other jurisdiction is you implement something like that as part of a package of measures, not as uh, something that you do in isolation. And so when we think about the Port of LA, we have some great contacts in the US and you know they've told us that in addition to a, a, a ban, They've provided incentives for the upgrade of, of vehicles to, to newer vehicles. They've provided incentives for retrofits and they've heavily subsidised the introduction of electric vehicles into that space so that operators have a range of incentives that actually help them to do that. So it, it, it almost moves away from a penalty-based approach to something that that is, is more akin to, a um, I guess, a, a support measure that helps the transition happen, it just recognises that there are barriers for those operators to not be able to do that. So yep. to sum that up, it's it's a package of measures that's most important and, and that's the critical success factor. Yeah, and, and the, the deployment globally on that sort of you know ban isn't actually a ban. Is what it is is a, is, a, is an increasing fine or a, or some sort of toll disincentive mm. um, that is then commensurate with the, you know uh, 
making behavior change or driving behavior change and then supported with another uh, another element. So uh, Birmingham, Nottingham in the UK are particularly doing that where they're um, supporting those who need to come into those um, low emission zones, but they're, they're, there's a fine that goes with entering them or a toll that goes with entering them. And that's that's probably the way to, to, um, to, to deal yeah. with that sort of situation. And and the low emission zone in Lon around London as well, um, the ultra low emission zone has the same sort of thing. There's no, you know, there's nothing to stop them from entering, but the the price that they pay for doing that acts as a, uh, you know, a price signal as a disincentive for them to use those those vehicles, while there are still also at the same time incentives to upgrade to new vehicles. And just as we round out here, look, there's one final question um, that seems to have popped in here, and I think this goes to how we focus on this project product or sorry, this problem. Is that um, the question is, is there any any um, uh, you know consideration being made for the future with regards to you know, either Euro six or or lower lower or zero emission vehicles into the future? Um, and for this project, the focus is age trucks. The focus is to make sure that we're looking at the problem, and and whilst we have half an eye on the future future um, and we don't want to continue to make the problem uh, happen um, the reality is that that there's a um, there's a focus here and, and policy should be focused on a direct measures that impact the cohort of age trucks um, if they're going to be brought forward and not those indirect measures that I mentioned before yeah. have you got anything to add we, to that mark yeah we did uh, if uh, it's early in the report there's a section on um, the potential impact of future technologies um, that pretty much says what Nathan just said, which is, you know, uh, a lot of um, well, the primary mechanism for the entry of those technologies is through new vehicles, but there are potential pathways as well for those technologies through retrofit programs and so forth. Um, if you have a look at that, that uh, it's not a whole chapter, it's a section of, of one chapter, uh, it probably covers that to, to a sufficient degree, yeah. Great, thank you all for your, um for your uh, questions, they were fantastic. And I'll hand over to Katarina. Thanks so much, Mark and Nathan. Um, we have a few questions left, uh, so we will answer them in writing and email the copy of the response to everybody after the session. Um, so before we wrap up, as usual, a few words in our future webinars. Um, we have quite a variety of sessions in June. Um, so on the 8th of June, please join us for um, uh, for an overview of the guidelines for the design and construction of large cantilever and gantry structures. And we also have a number of sessions on pavements. So for more information, uh, visit our website. And as usual, once we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire that will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to fill it in and let us know what you liked or didn't like about the session uh, and whether you have any suggestions for future webinars. Uh, once again, today's session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's available on our website. Um, thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. We will see you next time.